Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the origin and destiny of life. My guest is Dr. Bruce Damer, who collaborated with my old friend David Deemer at the University of California, Santa Cruz, to develop a new model of the origin of life that in 2017 was featured on the cover of Scientific American. Dr. Damer is truly a modern-day Renaissance man. He has consulted extensively with NASA to design a concept spacecraft capable of harvesting resources from asteroids. In addition, he curates the archives of counterculture figures such as Terence McKenna and Dr. Timothy Leary. He is also a pioneer in the design an implementation of virtual reality and is author of the book Avatars, Exploring and Building Virtual Worlds. In addition, he is a storyteller, a podcaster, and a mystic, and I'm sure we will have many things to discuss in this internet interview. Welcome, Bruce. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, when I have reviewed your biography, it is so full. You've done so many things. It's really taken me several readings just to digest it all. But I think a, a good place to start would be uh, your description of some of your childhood experiences that really propelled you on this amazing journey you've been on. Well, thank you. Yeah, i one that I recall was when I was nine years old and I was going to turn 10. And I thought, well, it's like rolling the odometer in a car. You know, it's kind of a big moment. I was a kid that studied odometers. You know, this is the way I was. So I went out on a long walk and decided to mark the occasion. I would open a portal into the future and speak to my future selves that would all be two-digit selves. And uh, so I did it. I didn't know I couldn't or shouldn't do such a thing. Uh, and then I sort of saw outline shapes of my future selves. And then I thought, well, what do I do now that I'm in communication with them? I get it. I'll write a contract on my hand that basically says, to be useful, uh, don't send bad thoughts back to previous little self for whatever little self did, because it only sort of gets in the way and little self did what little self could was trying to do the best they could. So they all agreed. And so everything's been sort of forward. There was a sort of rushing forward of positivity. And then I realized I wouldn't sort of question send stuff back down the transom. So in a sense, that gave me sort of a weird way to shape the future because I'm always positive about outcomes and they generally have always come come to pass you know even more amazingly than i than i could could suppose well it really suggests your involvement with the nature of time at a very early age yeah i you know in a sense i felt 
that the universe was run by synchronous events in some big, big game. And, you know, I didn't know about computers at the time, and now people use computer metaphors, but I sort of thought it was like some kind of big synchronous game uh, that was much more complex than than we monkeys could figure out, uh, but that we could pull on little threads of this game, you know, might call it Indra's net, you know, and various people would call it different things. And it would shape probabilities out ahead of us. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I actively was doing when I was 10, 11, 12. And then I was using another technique, which was deep imagination, where I would turn off my conscious state, this is in your territory, uh, to allow new thinking. Mm. I, would sh- I would shut down, because I noticed that when I closed my eyes after a stimulating day, I would see flashes of color and all kinds of things. And we didn't have color TV. This is like 1970. Uh our neighbors did, and it was pretty crappy color TVs, but I thought these flashes were brighter and better than their crappy Viking television set. So I've learned how to shut my consciousness down so those grew and be resolved into worlds or creatures or spaceships or whatever. And I thought, well, that's a neat system. And that system started helping me in all kinds of ways. My thirst thought experiment on the origin of life when I was 14 was one of those waking, walking out in the sagebrush hills near Kamloops, B.C. I saw a bundle of molecules that I spoke to. And I thought this is how science was done because Einstein did it and Descartes did it, you know, and the bees and the birds did it too. So anyway, so that that's, these. I learned that they were called thought experiments. Sometimes it's called the muse, maybe, for artists. or And that's how I, I built my entire career, and everything I do is, is those sort of downloads uh, that come at the right times to assemble complex solutions and stuff like that. And if you trust them and you go with them, they generally open up to new downloads. As I recall uh, from one of your talks, the molecules began speaking back to you. Yeah, the uh, the bundle of molecules, I was about to ask it, because I, I had just committed to working on the origin of life. This, I was 14. thought that's the coolest problem there is for a nerdy kid. Like, how did something self-assemble to create all of life? And so I was walking back to my parents' house in these sagebrush hills of Kamloops, and I saw the seething mass of molecules in my mind's eye, just like hanging there. And I was about to ask them a question, which was, you know, like, how did life begin? And and what does the movement of that molecule have to do with this one? And instead, it asked me a question, which was, figure out how I made a copy of myself. And then my mind flashed to, well, if you're a machine, uh, machines are made in factories, like automobiles are made in factories. And so you need a really bigger machine to make a copy of a little machine, just always the way, and I don't see a big machine around you. So it's implausible. You know, it's, it's just an implausible question. And the bundle of molecules winked as if to say, work on it. And 30-some <laughs> years later, it came in another download, another thought experiment. I saw cycling little protocells in a hot spring pool cycling and they they assembly into an aggregate and then the little parts becoming functional and selected by evolution 
and then forming a network which could create a bigger machine called the living world, the microbial community. And it was like, oh, it's little machines in collaboration that add up to making bigger machines. And you know, the Internet's been, done, been built that way. So th- that's an example of one of those, how, how they pan out. I think it's fascinating that you worked with David Deemer on on this project. I collaborated with him many, many years ago. I think it was about 1981 or 82 on uh, doing some research with a Brazilian psychic healer. Yeah, David, um, Dave and I meet, have met for tea once or twice a month for almost nine years now, collaborating on the origin of life. And Dave described in the 70s that he would go to Berkeley to these these groups. Uh, uh, Nick Herbert also attended a sort of group on, I forget, you probably know that it was consciousness theory or something. Uh, the fundamental uh, physics group, the parapsychology research group, the consciousness theory group. There were so many of them in Berkeley in those days. Yeah, and um, so Dave... Dave actually, I, he met Russell Targ and Hal Putoff and all these people yeah. uh, who I met later. Um, and he he sort of was very interesting. He was very open-minded about things. But after, I think, a couple of years, he just sort of quietly disappeared. Well, I, I can tell you this, that uh, in that study that he and I did together several years ago, uh, I'll just mention it briefly because I know we want to move on, but we, we anesthetized fruit flies with ether and, and then had the psychic healer try to awaken them, and we counted them as they o- awakened, and there was a control test tube and a test tube that the healers uh, worked on, uh, when the flies wake up, they move towards the light, so you could tell right away. And uh, mm. we got a, a very simple, easy-to-do experiment. We got significant results right off the bat. Wow. Okay, I have to ask Dave about this. Uh, he he <laughs> often comes up with great experiments like that. Was it yeah. published? No. Well, it was presented to one of the local societies, but it never got put into print. It was Really, it was just a pilot study, and uh, we we never, because the healer went back to Brazil, we didn't replicate it. Anyway, I do remember him explaining to me his research on the origin of life and how he had determined that the very first thing you need is a membrane. Yeah, and in, in fact, um, it probably is membranes first, Uh Membranes are an organizing matrix. So your body and my body are just a huge bag of membranes around things called cells of all different types and organelles within the cells. We're just really walking lipid, phospholipid bilayers, pretty much. And if if things are not encapsulated in very small volumes, the chemistry just can't work. Things have to be really crowded, just almost like Human cities have to be crowded enough, you know, shopping malls and automobiles and things like this, for things to work. You have to be close. And that seems to be a general principle. And the the, the best molecule to do this job was called an amphiphile or lipid. We're raining in from space four billion years ago onto the surface of the Earth. If they landed in the ocean, they would be dissolved and actually crystallized, these membranes. Because you can't wash your hands with soap and seawater. And soap is kind of a, an amphiphile. 
But if they land in little ponds, Darwin's warm little ponds that Darwin predicted in 1871 where life could start, they concentrate, form these sheets that then layer down on the bottom of the pond to layer and squeeze together the the building blocks of life and make things like RNA and, and peptides. And then when you put a, you know, when a geyser or something puts some hot water back in, you form trillions of compartments, some of which contain these cool RNA and peptide-like things. And now there's a natural experiment of trillions of these wobbly compartments. And the ones that are stable form a sludge back at the bottom, like a bathtub, you know, bubble bath sludge. And then they fuse back together and they resynthesize their polymer. So it's that simple cycle that pumps over and over and over again that gets you into what are called combinatorial selection and evolution. And gradually the pieces of the living world come into being. So really it had to be lipid or it had to be membranes first. It had to be compartments first. I'm aware, and we're going to talk also about your work in space exploration and your development of vehicles that could go out to the edge of the solar system and capture asteroids to mine them for purposes of actually building livable structures in outer space. But it dawned on me that what you're doing with with this vehicle, it's like a, a bubble itself. It it it's the principle of the membrane that you've taken from the cellular level to the uh, level of a uh, you could almost call it a starship. Brilliantly uh, integrated, Jeff. Uh, in fact, a couple of years ago, uh, when I had been working on this for now forty years, the origin of life and the future of life. So I thought, as a kid, like. We can figure out how life began and will teach us something. If we can figure out how to make a technology or tool to let life extend into the cosmos, it's good because humans are just going to like consume everything on the earth. There's nothing going to stop this thing. And so I worked on those two things for 40 years. Then one day, literally one day in May, they came to pass that, oh, it's cycling protocells, little compartments around our polymers. And then this idea of we call Shepard, this balloon that goes around an asteroid, introduces a gas to control its motion, stop it tumbling, and then push it like a sailing ship, and then extract liquid volatiles from it for fuels, that they were the same thing, compartmentalization. So at the origin of life, you have trillions of protocells. At the extent of life into the universe, you have perhaps millions of these encapsulated objects around the very asteroids that were the building blocks for life in the first place. I realized I'm working on the same problem, and it's the same general principle, and that if you had a spaceship at the edge of the solar system looking looking at our, our our expansion off the Earth for 500 years, you'd see this immense uh, encapsulation of millions of, of these objects, and then the building of space colonies around them building of biospheres, you know, melting them into biospheres, extracting whatever we need, and it would look like the cycling pool four billion years ago, the same process, the same principle. I think it's really quite an incredible uh, notion that uh, the very principle that enabled life to flourish on this planet will also uh, at a more conscious level enable life to flourish uh, in the cosmos. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was also kind of a neat little bow on it. You know how sometimes when things become simple, like a simple explanation arises, uh, you you kind of feel good about it. We we're we like we're symmetry beings. We we're symmetrical. We like simplicity. We like patterns. So for a primate thing, it was a delight. You know, like you know this this is actually a really beautiful thing, and so. Here it is, and we're putting it out to the world right now. On top of your very serious engagement with space exploration and, and with the origins of life, you're also a pioneer in the field of virtual reality. How did that come about? Well, that was interesting because in, in the 70s, when I started thinking about computers but didn't have access to them, I thought computers were like internal virtual worlds. Like I could already picture in my mind, I could already enter these spaces. And when I found out how computers ran, it was like, oh no, this is, they're really terrible. Instructions come in like sand grains in an hourglass. They drip through the hourglass one at a time and they form a pile of sand grains. So I thought, this is terrible. How are computers going to be able to do anything significant? Well, it turns out that John von Neumann, the very architect of this von Neumann architecture, had the same concerns because this was, he designed this in the late 1940s. So it was like, oh man, how do we push through the pipe a, a, a system of reality, like a three dimensional world? Well, we have to just have make the pipe fast enough. So I got involved in the late 80s after reading Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, uh, who described avatars and virtual worlds. Neuromancer had come earlier you know, by William Gibson, I thought, this is the coolest thing. What if we could do this? And PCs were just becoming fast enough by the early 90s that you saw Doom. Remember Doom? No. It was a three-dimensional shoot 'em game that was a huge hit in 93. And I thought, there it is, a virtual world on a regular PC at home. What happens when we connect those worlds together and you can see other players? Well, I formed an organization to do just that. VR, which used a headset, a head-mounted display, had come and kind of gone by then because of many problems. But virtual worlds by 1995-96 were exploding on the Internet. So instead of having a thing on your head, you just had a screen like we are in front of our screens now, uh, unencumbered. And then I looked back through history, and the Edison Kinetoscope of 1896, if you can look these up, it had Edison's idea for the movies was to put your head in a box in an appliance because he sold appliances, telephones, phonographs, and things. And a, a 200 feet of film would roll inside the box and you would witness a film. And then you had earbuds like I'm wearing right now that were attached to an Edison cylinder that was going to give it sound. So, film in 1896 was like VR in 1996. You had to have put all this hardware on to experience it solo. And then I realized, well, that the brothers Lumiere, who invented the film projector, instead of having to have an appliance, who, you know, at the risk of their businesses and their lives, because Edison was such a litigious, you know, sod, uh, he uh, so they invented cinema, and so they could then project onto a painted, 
canvas in a theater, and people could just sit there socially enjoying a film experience, a five-minute film in France. And this exploded because it was social, it was multi-user, and it was unencumbered. And so this started happening on the Internet in 95, 96, and I organized the organization. I wrote the first book about it, and I held the first conferences on it and help kickstart a whole new medium, which is still going. You know, it became Second Life and World of Warcraft and Minecraft and multiplayer and multi-constructivist environments, which are huge. VR has since come back, but it's, it's facing the same problems that virtual worlds never, uh, never had, it's the encumbrance problem. You, you mean the necessity of goggles and so on? The goggles and then the vestibular problems, people getting nauseous, and also the fact that the VR uh, companies have never understood the content side of things. So you go into these very rich VR worlds, but there's nobody there. And people go into cyberspace because of other people, pretty much. We don't go in for, well, we may go in for some cool experience like running the Myst DVD game and the 90s CD-ROM game. But we only do that so much. We really want to connect with people. You know, the killer killer app of the Internet is people. So anyone creating a new medium that does not cater intimately to connecting people is going to fail. Hmm. Now, it's intriguing to me that uh, your focus on virtual reality has largely been, as you say, people, collaboration, and that's the same focus that you discovered uh, with regard to the origin of life, that uh, these molecules are all collaborating with each other. Yeah, and, you know, thank you, Jeff, for pointing all this out. Uh, I've never seen these connections quite in this way. Uh, Well, here's... For for the listening and viewing audience, the new thinking around all this, which is going to roll into philosophy, uh, our feelings about ourselves, and even our spiritual basis in this century, hopefully sooner than later, is that we may have discovered, Dave and I, that through that the origin of life was not a set of competing individuals that were duking it out, like Duke Nukem or some video game. They were a collaborative community in, in, uh, in a network. And we may be able to show this chemically, that this is the only way by which these flabby little membranous protocells have to get together in that sludge and exchange information and, and, and stuff in order to stay ahead of just being degraded. And then they have to cycle over and over again back into their sludges. And power is in numbers, so if you get things together, just like the cells in your body or mycelia in the forest floor, it's all about aggregation and sharing. So that the common ancestor of us all is a common community. There never was a common individual. It was only a common community. And this is a big philosophical role uh, that, that hardcore reductionist chemistry can push into the culture. And the equivalent of this, I think, is uh, Albert Einstein's 1919 proof of general relativity with the eclipse, uh, where they showed the the light bending around the star, Mm. uh, or bending around the sun, the star's light bending, and it it verified that space was curved and relativity was a real thing. 
And in the 1920s, specifically 1921, he came on a tour of America with Charles Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin, strange bedfellows. Yeah. Uh, but he was he was the first scientific rock star. And Einstein was, yeah. Yeah, he was, and he was in newsreels and things like this. And relativity helped roll the culture. So in the 1920s, it was the most dramatic decade of the 20th century. It, it introduced modernism, like fascism, like post post uh, kingships, uh, telecommunication, you know, the telephone spread, radio, stock trading, the consumer economy exploded, women's liberation, new types of literature and art, the Bauhaus, you know, Bertolt Brecht, all of that. And relativity came in there very powerfully from science to say everything is relative. It's frames of reference. There's no fixed. There's no, and people kind of understood that but it was a it was a revolutionary idea. So what what I'm hoping is this idea of a common ancestor is the is a community. We come from community can roll into the night into the 2020s and bring us together because this is coming out of hardcore reductionist. It's a very profound philosophical idea actually. It seems to me that it offers a potential resolution to a classic problem like which came first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah, and in fact, I'm just writing a four-part essay on that very theme, the chicken and egg theme. And and you want to know the answer? Yeah. So the here's the issue. When you have the little protocells that are all tucked together, they don't reproduce. They're just made by the environment cycling. There's no gene. There's no little template. There's no little code to make the next, you know, chicken. So in a sense, the chicken came first because the protocells formed, but they don't have any genetic material, but they can still be made by a cycling pool. And then they beget the egg, which allows more efficient uh, formation of new chickens. But actually, it isn't the chicken or the egg that came first. It was the pool itself. Mm. So it was the chicken in yard. It was the place in which chickens can scratch and make more chickens. So the what came first was the conditions, was the environment itself. Mm-hmm. And, and that seems to be, in effect, the same principle that might uh, enable the human species to migrate into uh, the cosmos. It's going to require yeah, enormous uh, cooperation. Enormous cooperation and so the, what we have to do as a species in this century is we have to, in a sense, uh, fight uh, what you might even think of as viral infections in our culture. So the viral infections in our culture are uh, stories of separation. This is how Charles Eisenstein describes them. Story, we're about to see him next week in Orcas Island. Mm. Uh, stories of separation which create, you know, you could call them fake news or conspiracy theories or, you know, racism or sexism or things like this, where you make the other group the enemy, or you create fear, confusion, and anxiety. Those are sort of toxicities in the body of not only the human civilization, but the biosphere itself. So one could argue that this, the story of separation of, say, fear of nature uh, created uh, the destruction of nature by primates, which is creates an existential threat to us 
because we we actually are in union with nature. We're inseparable from nature. But the recent trend of what uh, a USC professor recently told me was almost like uh, mimetic pollution, right? That there's huge belching smokestacks, belching uh, mimetic pollution into our environment. So as they clean the smog out of Los Angeles, the airways or the cyberspace, you know, threads or wires have filled with toxic mimetic pollution. And we actually have to deal with it because it's clouding our, our future because we can't, our children don't know what's real and they don't know what to believe. And so people start getting, stop getting vaccinate, vaccinations, for example, and suddenly we have a huge pandemic. You know, these are ex- existential threats. And in, in the past, we've had systems, whether it be the media, science, or just people with common sense and objective reasoning to counter this sort of stuff. You know, we always used to laugh that it's all in the National Enquirer on the, next to the cash register when you check out, and all about all the made-up nonsense there that was humorous, but that is now taking over. And it's an existential threat to our everything we built over thousands of years. So that's perhaps, I think, the number one issue uh, that we have to face. Even more than nuclear waste, I guess. Yeah, much more, because, in fact, fake news and sort of, in a sense, the toxicity of these stories of separation are, are the causes of war. They're the causes of, of, of abuse. And, of course, underneath these stories of separation lie trauma and the, what causes somebody to either believe in some of this stuff or generate it. It's usually some kind of deeply buried trauma that uh, came into their system when they were very young. So as, as humans and the healing arts, for example, and neuroscience now, for the first time, uh, you know, categories in the DSM, where it's the schizoid response, the hysteric wound, the rigid wound. Oh, these are all described by in psychology now. They can be tracked in triggered states in fMRI. They can be treated, you know, pharmacologically, but also in the more powerful healing arts. Uh, now have identified that a human is an operating system booting up every day in every way, and our responses are conditioned by this internal programming, but the programming is, is malleable, it's changeable. People can be released from suffering, as the Dalai Lama would would say, because once you under, you're self-aware of your own responses and you're not attached to them, you have a chance to heal them and change them. Okay, let me shift gears uh, one more time, because your resume is so enormous. You're also taking care of the archives of some leading countercultural figures. Uh, one individual who, whom I interviewed myself many times when he was alive, Terence McKenna, and, and also Dr. Timothy Leary, which uh, suggests uh, to me, at least, that you have a, a, I'll call it a living interest in entheogens. I do. Uh, and in fact, I studiously avoided entheogens uh, because, uh, until I was 37, because I had this natural ability to enter into worlds. And I, to me, you know, it was always like, if I took something that was very harsh on the system, I might shatter that of that ability. 
I might actually foreshorten that ability, or I might start to rely upon that over a natural ability. So I pretty much studiously avoided everything, and people never offered anything to me <laughs> over all these years. So then I, but then I met Terrence McKenna. And Terrence actually came to this house, gosh, 21, 22 years ago, with Ralph Abraham and his mm-hmm. son Finn. I sat him down in front of a big computer screen and put him into virtual worlds. He was just completely amazed and, and entranced by that, and he was on some kind of old Mac that couldn't run them. So he, I, for hours and hours, I showed him what people were building in cyberspace in three-dimensional worlds, and he was completely blown away. And then we, went, we agreed to meet at his house in Hawaii, and we did. Uh, but before that, he provided me the doorway into his world through through his technology, and I experienced uh, that kind of an opening for the first time. And then we could compare notes. So after that, I was quite interested in the gener- the generative qualities of those worlds as compared to my inner endogenous worlds, which I call them endo, uh, technological worlds and the exogenous worlds of entheogens, if you call them. Sometimes I like to call them the elixirs, just because they're so magical. When we talk about the universal process that you have found in the origins of life and the development of consciousness, you have a a model. I think uh, you use the the initial PIM. It's a threefold model. Let's let's go into that a little bit now. I had been invited by a man named Stuart Hammeroff, who I know you've probably interviewed. Many times. Uh, many times, who established 25 years ago a conference in Tucson, Arizona, called the Science of Consciousness. And it's sort of a leading watering hole for a, a lot of people interested, what is consciousness? Uh, and, what is, you know, all kinds of people. It's one of the most diverse groups that ever meets on the planet, I think. And Stuart had said, will you come to our meeting and talk about the relationship between the origin of life and consciousness. I thought, oh no, this is this is impossible. I haven't cracked a book on consciousness. In fact, I cracked a book out open on consciousness, and like these are just a huge amount of words that I don't understand. You know, there's there's 600 pages of, of words about consciousness. There's no definition of it. So I thought, what do I do? Well, I'll go into one of my endo spaces and ask the question and see what the answer I get. And I was shown the following system. So uh, the entity or whatever it was said, let me show you how you were made. Okay, right. <laughs> so I sat back. It, it asked, are you sitting down? I said, I'm lying down. <laughs> <laughs> and it showed the background plane of physics. I explained this to Nick Herbert and got my hand slapped again because I don't understand the quantum level. I can only think classically. Background of physics is a wave, you know, push down here and it waves predictably over here. Then a divot opened up in that visionary plane. And I looked closely and I realized that's my precious little membranous protocell. And it's crowding things inside it. And then suddenly I I look back and there's a Cartesian plot hung into the space. And it has a curve going way up. And the, the entity says, what do you see? And I see, uh, 
I think because things are crowded in there, it's increasing the probability of them interacting. Bing, you know, I won one award, you know, a light bulb went on. Probability. You need first a probability-shaping machine, and that's the crowding in a, pro, in a membranous, what we call a protocell. Then there were two of them together. And then I watched a little divot or dip between them as stuff was going back and forth between the protocells at a bigger rate than I thought would normally happen. And it said, what do you see? Another plot was hung with the letter I and going, going up nonlinearly, and it was interaction. That When you have two of these, these blobs, stuff can go back and forth and interact and send messages, which physics can't do. Physics doesn't do message passing like this. And then the system filled up with a thousand of these these blobs or these bubbles or protocells, and there was interaction across the whole thing, really sophisticated, a whole network. And then the third plot was hung in space with a question mark, and it said, what do you think happens next? You know, dome skull monkey. I said, I, I don't know, some kind of a memory or something? Bing, and it showed a, a genetic polymer could arise within this mass of protocells. It was a sufficiently complex matrix to give rise to a templating memory system. And then the whole thing went away and this triangle appeared with PIM. Probability shaping begets network connections which write memory. Read the memory, you get things that are more improbable happening. Uh, coming into actuality, creating more message passing and, and interaction and writing more memories. And it started to cycle this triangle faster and faster and faster, spun up the living world all the way to the origin of life and beyond. All of biology, all of technology, culture, everything just exploded. And then the words came, there is nothing that is that is outside of this system. This is the system that creates everything, including your experience your spiritual experience, your bloody trips, you know, whatever. It creates all of it. This is this is it. And I thought, well, uh, okay. <laughs> so so the three elements, again, probability, uh, some kind of probability generator, uh, uh, interaction, there have to be a, a multiple, a community, mm-hmm. and, and then memory arises out of that. And I gather mm-hmm. that, that in your... Uh, thinking about it, uh, that leads to consciousness. Yeah, so at the SAND, so at, at Science of Consciousness, I presented this in 2017 and got a uh-huh from the audience. Like, that's pretty much it. Then I presented it again at Science and Non-Duality uh, in the fall, which is a conference, another wonderful conference, where it's full of more Buddha heads. You know, so I, I call them gearheads or Buddha heads. So how do you take Gearheady people that are skeptical reductionists who do not like woo, whatever we call woo, and give them something they can start with and cycle it and show that they think that's plausible because you're showing empirical science. Then you abstract it into this PIM system and you spin and spin and spin and spin. So it sort of blows them apart because you re- they realize, oh my gosh, that generates a huge system. And then you show them how it stacks. So as this thing cycles, it creates slices in a stack in a tower of probability that goes up for 4 billion years, reaching to the point of the ultimate achievement, which is the probably the smartphone, <laughs> the, 
the smartphone is such an improbable object in the cosmos. You know, I, I want to create a New Yorker cartoon because I'm a cartoonist that shows two universes talking to each other, and one of them says, oh, my gosh, someone created a smartphone inside of me. What do I do? <laughs> and the other, the other universe says, oh, smartphones weren't supposed to be created until the 10 millionth universe where octopi, which changes their body, they become their digital beings. They created the smartphone, but no, what created it? Oh, some monkeys. Oh, we have a problem. You know, what do we do? Because evolution's now spinning faster and faster because of the smartphone, because it's a PIM device. Mm. It crowds stuff together in a device, it interconnects, and it reads and writes memories like crazy. And now we're all wired to this. So, anyway, the universes are all up and wondering what to do about it. But uh, so I presented this at Sand. And the interesting thing is, you can act, there's a transitionary point between the gearhead world and the Buddha head world, where the Buddha heads say, well, we know it's all one and it's non-dual or it's groundless ground, and they can enter these states that gearhead people wouldn't, don't even trust. I mean, some, some gearhead people do enter the states. Um, you know, I've entered all the states, and I'm interested in the connection between all these states. And I think that where they intersect is that wonderful synchronous field thing that Carl Jung talked about, that I kind of intuited as a 10-year-old, that if you put intention out, the universe lines up all this stuff. And the universe is actually the living world lining it up. The living world is so densely interconnected that it, it is a gigantic probability shaping field. That's how it rocks, and that's how it rolls. So what life does is it shifts probabilities into high gear and makes improbable things happen, especially when you have complex animals like us with language. And that we're in the soup. We don't, we don't see the shape of it, but we can use our intention with our minds to say, hey, I want to like create a spacecraft that allows us to consume asteroids. And suddenly things line up and people show up like Carlos yesterday, who's forming a company to do it. Mm. You know, and is going to meet all the right people, and it will be done in 20 years, because I put out that strong intention. It's incredibly improbable that that thing ever flies, but intention is a sh- is a machine that goes into the synchronous field, and it sh- it shapes these tunnels or valleys of probability that into which objects roll, and you pick them up and say, "Yeah, go to Burning Man this year." Boom, you know that's just intuitive, and you go there and you meet a billionaire, you know, stuff is happening all the time. So that that's what I think where gearhead meets Buddha head, because these things are so improbable that happen in our lives now, and it's the quickening constantly, and we can explain it through the densely interconnected field made by PIM. It just, it just goes beyond our conscious ability to see it, but we can use it. Hmm. So you view consciousness, if I understand correctly, as an emerging, an emergent phenomena. Some people would call it an epiphenomenon. Yeah, I think that, you know, I know at these conferences there's these people called, they call themselves panpsychists. Or, yeah. And I find that to be a very weak, uh, lame arguments that, oh, the universe is somehow conscious. And, you know, I'm gearheady enough that, hey, you know, have you been in the universe lately? You know, have you, if, if you go, if you go to Mars and I'm on the, 
landing site selection team for Mars 2020. The next uh, rover is going to be a life detection mission. If you went and stood yourself on Mars uh, without a spacesuit, without a life support system, without bringing a piece of Earth with you, you'd become an unconscious bunch of dried out, you know, stuff that would deteriorate really rapidly and be wiped out by radiation and perchlorates. And and you wouldn't sense any kind of spiritual essence in Mars. You wouldn't you wouldn't have a, a synchronous field to, to call upon because you're outside of the living bolus, outside of the biosphere. Most of the universe is that way. Most of the universe hasn't evolved or been done much that's productive in 13 billion years. You know, the universe has generated a partial uh, periodic table that we've extended and made a whole heck of a lot of dust, some standard forms of stars and planets, and a whole bunch of dark stuff. But if you look back 10 billion years ago, uh, it's about the same. So the universe is vastly unproductive, and it's also dissolving, it's evaporating. Like, the universe has sort of got fed up. You know, like, you know, uh, nothing's going on. I just want to be back in, you know, in a calm rest state. I'm just going to dissolve all this accidental matter and energy that came out through a mistake or something. And then, of course, life arises and can generate massive complexity relatively quickly. Hmm. And the universe is going, no, not again. You know, the the living thing, and now it's conscious, and now it's actually trying to figure out the universe. And it's going to find out the secret that the universe is, does bugger all. And, you know, and but but when we over-project, when we, we, we look out, Beyond the living world, which is the great miracle, it's the, the great miracle of our, of our existence, is the living world and evolution right here, right now, not somewhere else. Not, we can't, don't need to project it into make God the conscious atom. Not outside of ourselves. It's, it, it's us and it's within us. It's our present experience. It's everything around us. It's the birds in the spring. And, and so... I think of panpsychism and all those sorts of things as a form of dissociation from what is and denial of life itself. Let me push you a little further on that. You, you, you may well be aware, I imagine you're aware of David Chalmers' notion of the hard problem and, and the idea that uh, even theoretically, you know, people don't seem to understand how you can take... Uh, unconscious matter and and make it conscious you can for example you can have memory computers have memory but they don't have consciousness i think that my problem with all of that is when i see david doing his talks it's a whole bunch of bullet points in a in a bullet items in a powerpoint yeah what these guys need to do i think i feel that they're very dissociated Mm. if they go into nature if they go into the laboratory, they look down the barrel of a microscope and they put it together from observing how physics and the natural world work and how chemistry works, they can get themselves very gr- much more grounded. I find that their arguments are very theoretical. It's almost like being in a monastery a thousand years ago, arguing whether Jesus owned the clothes on his back. You know, this was a big, this is a huge topic of debate. Yeah. In the year 1000 that went on and on. And I, I find it to be just, in a sense, a little bit annoying because go out and look for explanations. Go out and look for the properties of the world and physics and biology. Study 
cell biology, study neurons, you know, but in, in detail, not in bullet points, not in abstractions. And, and you kind you get much calmer because you realize, okay, what is, what is consciousness built out of? It's built out of, you know, feedback. It's built out of memory. It's built out of these, these building blocks, stimulus and response. It's built out of all these parts. And, and primate consciousness is very specific, too. You know, primate consciousness is very visual. It's not very olfactory. If you found intelligent earthworms from, you know, the, the planet Zebel Ganubi, it's one of Terence's favorites, um, those intelligent earthworms would, you know, encounter us and say, how can you have any consciousness at all? You can't feel chemicals through your skin. You're not even present, you know. Well, we've got optics. We can we can see optics, and they'd say, "But that's nothing. That that's that's nothing. How can you how can you know the world because you're not even touching it?" Mm-hmm. And then we we argue with them and say, "Well, do you know what geometry is? You know, all this stuff is a well. We don't have to know what geometry is. We're, we're goo. You know, there is geometry is an invention. You know, there's no triangles. You know." Show us the triangle, and we'll show you that it's goo. You know, this is an Alan Watts thing, right? The prickly and the goo, right? So we are totally biased by our evolution to think that we have a model for conscious experience that's only a very small, broken fragment of a view. And so I think it's great hubris even to talk about consciousness or hard problems or soft problems. And I think, and I think it's actually more illustrative to study the natural world uh, than to uh, create new hierarchies of dissociated ideas. Wouldn't you say it was some of your own dissociative ideas, dissociated ideas that led you to some of your scientific discoveries, those thought experiments you engaged in as a child? I I, I would certainly give that to you there. Um, I would always make the following contract because I realized there were two modes I could be in. At school, I was bored. So I would be in the mode of, okay, let's go into imaginative worlds for entertainment and escape and dissociation. <clears throat> but in a sense, I used that as a training wheels, to, so I could create these vivid worlds of the imagination and then I drew them, thousands and thousands of drawings in my teen years. But when it came down to experiential worlds through meditation or endogenous or exogenous, you know, uh, pathways, when I would go into a very powerful experience, I would make a contract, an agreement with it, and say, look, wherever you take me, the intention I have for this experience is the following. And you may take me to places that don't seem to have any association with my original request, but it will always come back to, I need to land something in the world. I need to do something for my own healing. I need to uh, have an insight that I can bring back. There has to be something to bring back that isn't just story. You know, one of the issues uh, between Terrence and Dennis McKenna was that uh, Terrence had an experience in the late 80s where he was scared off of his favorite teacher. You know, this is a well-known story that I came through secondhand. And so Terrence actually abstained from his primary elixir for the last decade of his life. And as a result of that, uh, you can see in his, his dialogue with his audience, 
he was making shit up. Clearly, he was like the spinning tales. Now, of course, everyone loved the tales. I loved the tales. But occasionally, yeah. uh, Dennis would go on Art Bell or something like that and say, Terrence is making all this shit up. You know, he's not checking anything with me. And he's just leading gullible people on about, you know, eschatons and singularities and all this sort of nonsense. Uh, and so there was a disagreement between the two brothers because Terrence left the world of what was what uh, Dennis Descott described as being in contact with the Logos, with really direct experience, really profoundly moving, however it's sourced. And he was just, he was um, elaborating on it. And that's how religions are created and all kinds of historical fictions are created that way. We just love to do that. But Terence was so far dissociated from the Logos, if you could call it, by the late 90s that Ralph described taking him down, like Rupert and Ralph taking him down during a trialogue in 1998. So I actually put that into a podcast where they knocked Terence off his proverbial Irish bar stool. And because they were tired of all this stuff being just made up. I mean, they, so there does come a limit. I mean, there's, there comes a limit where we are now ideating, we're in our heads, and we're making shit up for entertainment value or convincing other people of things. And and we ought to really just stop and and reevaluate at that point. Mm-hmm. I, I get that completely. Uh, I haven't discussed with you the fact that uh, I had a mentor myself. You may not be familiar with Arthur M. Young. He was uh, the inventor of the Bell helicopter. Then he became a cosmologist. And uh, he graduated from Princeton in 1925 and wanted to go into philosophy. But he realized uh, sort of what you're saying, philosophers are a dime a dozen. That's the way he phrased it. Uh, He said in order to be worthy of doing philosophy, he had to tackle a practical problem first. So he went to the Mm. patent office and discovered there were 200 unsuccessful attempts to develop a vehicle that could hover in midair and uh, move in 300 in in every direction. And and so he said, if I can invent that, then I'll be worthy of, of doing philosophy. And I, I gather that you're really taking a very similar attitude. That is so beautiful, Jeff. That's, that is really beautiful. I think it's good advice. I mean, if you stay in the ivory tower and you never go out and build something in the world, uh, I think you're not grounded. I think you're you're going to get lost in the academy and up in the monastery there and arguing over uh, who owns the clothes on their back. Well, Bruce Damer, this has been a delightful conversation. And uh, also, I know you and I have agreed that this is really the the beginning of a series. I know you're you're doing such fascinating work in so many areas. Uh, In the future, we'll be able to go into greater depth into them. But I wanted to give our our viewers an overview of your life and your work. And I I think uh, we've accomplished that. Uh, at least to some extent now. Uh, We've kind of skimmed over many things, and uh, so I look forward to future discussions with you. I'm greatly looking forward to them, and in in the next show, I'll be holding up artifacts like uh, 
three billion year old uh, stromatolites for for the viewing audience to experience. Yes, you pointed out in one of your talks that these are our ancestors. Yeah, in fact, uh, with Deepak Chopra at um, TSC last year uh, in his hotel room, we did a a video list like this, and I gave him the stromatolite, and he explained it to the audience because despite uh, the impression that he sometimes leaves, leaves, he's a real science geek. He just loves it. Mm. Well, thank you once again, Bruce. Um, I look forward to our uh, discussions. Absolutely, Jeffrey, and uh, we'll catch you the next on the next round. Mm-hmm.